Amen. Amen. If you have a Bible, open up to 1 Samuel chapter 20, 21, and the first few verses of chapter 22. Um, we're going to be looking at these uh, chapters this morning, but in particular, we will be reading today, uh, for in just a moment, chapter 21, verse 10, on down to 22, verse 5. So if you want to specifically uh, be there, that'd be great. And as you're opening there, I want to remind you that one reason why uh, we've started putting the sermon title and the text right there on the front of the chimes is just to encourage you and remind you, um, because we're in some bigger chunks of 1 Samuel, and it's sort of just impractical to get them all read, every verse read in the middle of the service. It could take a really long time, so should encourage you during the week to kind of read and study these passages. I think you'll be fine if you don't do that, but I think you'll be a lot better if you do and enjoy the sermon more and, and learn more and be able to grow a little more uh, then. So I would encourage you to, to uh, begin that habit if you haven't done, it, done so already and uh, look forward to continuing here in 1 Samuel and then on later, uh, Lord willing, into 2 Samuel uh, in the months to come. If you have your Bibles open there, 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 10, do me a favor, please, and stand with me out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. The author writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God Himself is speaking to us, beginning in 21.10. David rose... And fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. And then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you, till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. And then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Let's pray together. O Lord our God, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you for this opportunity we have to gather and to hear from your word today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know about y'all. I don't know when you do your thinking, but I tend to do my thinking at night. Sort of lay in bed at night sometimes and have my head on the pillow. And that's when sort of all the thoughts of the day and the week and 
often the month to kind of start crashing in on me and I start thinking about these things and thinking through these things. Now, over the years, I've had to make it a habit to also pray during this time so I don't just lay there and worry or obsess or contemplate the whole time to hand things over to the Lord. But I tend to do a lot of my thinking at night. And I don't know about you, but difficult days and dark days tend to make me think at night even more. They really, really, really make me think at night. I went through a season several years ago where I was even, in fact, I'm not, I'm not a natural worrier. Um, it's just not a tendency I have. Um, that's not necessarily, I've got plenty of other sins I do have a tendency towards. So don't, those of you who worry, don't worry about that, please. You know, well, not even the preacher worries. What should I do, you know? And uh, no, I, I, I'm not a natural worrier, but I found myself at times. I'm also not a natural waker upper, uh, especially not in the middle of the night. I usually sleep on on through the night, but I found myself a few years ago waking up in the middle of the night a lot. And I would wake up in the middle of the night, and then all the worries that were going on, things I didn't even really worry about in the day, would just I just couldn't get them off my mind. I just couldn't go back to sleep, just worrying and thinking about things, unreasonable, irrational worry. And so you may be like that. Uh, eventually, I realized that God was not waking me up to worry. God was waking me up to pray. <laughs> and so I started praying, and, and eventually I stopped waking up in the middle of the night because he gives to his beloved sleep, I guess. But uh, all that being said, uh, you may find yourself thinking at night. I tend to think at night. And in the last few weeks, there's just been a lot on my mind, and I found myself at night thinking a lot. There's a lot going on, a lot going on with many of you, a lot going on in my own family, and there's just things to think about, things to pray about. And so, because of my experience, sometimes I like to think about the fugitive David during this season. On, on the run, and during the day, I guess there's plenty to do. There's things to take care of, there are animals to feed, there are things to do, but I sometimes wonder what it might have been at night. It's clear that David did some things at night. There's, for example, the eighth psalm that seems like he's reflecting on the night sky. Um, and uh, when I look at the heavens, right, the stars above... Uh, David is thinking in these ways. He's on the run. He's hiding in caves, trying to find a stronghold, a place to stay. His, he's trying to convince his closest ally that things are really as bad as they are, but Jonathan, being a good son and a good man, just has a hard time believing that the days are as dark as David says they are. David's weaponless. He's alone. He's without any provisions. He's hunted like an animal, and sometimes I think when you're laying in a cave at night, what would be on your mind? What are you thinking about? What are you going through? What dark days David found himself in? What difficulties he found himself in? But this morning, as we look at this text, I want to show you God's faithfulness to David. And I hope as we see God's faithfulness to David, we'll recognize that even in our darkest days, God is faithful. That's what I want you to see today is God's faithfulness even in our worst and most terrible days. For these chapters today, I want to show you three ways that God has shown his faithfulness in the worst days of his servants. Three ways that is that God shows himself faithful even in your dark days. Three truths this morning, I think, hope that will revive your heart to see and to savor the faithfulness of God. Here's the first point this morning. Um, first point I want you to see is this. God is faithful through covenant community. God is faithful through covenant community. 
Chapter 20 continues the narrative and continues the story of Jonathan and David's friendship. Jonathan, we learn in verse 2, David has fled after uh, Saul was prevented from killing him when God uh, struck him down and led him to prophesy at Naoth and Ramah before Samuel and the other prophets. And now David was able to escape there and he goes from Naoth and Ramah and he came and said before Jonathan, now, I don't know how he's able to get to Jonathan, how he's able to rendezvous with Jonathan. We'll see the great links they have to go through to try to uh, talk to one another later. But at this point, I guess in his desperation, David takes the risk and somehow approaches his friend Jonathan, the son of the king. What have I done? He asks, what is my guilt and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? Chapter 20, verse 1. Jonathan's a little naive, perhaps. He really believes, and it's a misplaced trust, but a trust nonetheless. A trust, he believes, that his father tells him everything. He shares everything with him, that they're a a, a unified front in leading and governing the kingdom of Israel. But the sin of Saul has driven a wedge even between him and his Son, we'll see that wedge driven even deeper throughout the course of this narrative. David finally explains and presses upon him. He says, no, that, that's not the case. In fact, he uh, is so uh, jealous of me and frustrated with me. He knows our friendship. He's hiding things from you. And then in verse 3, David presses the point home. He says, I am but a step from death. And I hope you realize that, that, that what David is trying to press in here is that this is literal. At this very moment, he was just a step from death because if he hadn't barely escaped the spear of Saul, if he hadn't taken that step in the right direction, he would have already been pinned to the wall. And so Jonathan and David hatch a plan. Now, at this point, many of you have been in a situation like this where you're trying to convince someone of something you know to be a fact, where you're no longer wondering. Jonathan's already tried to reconcile his friend and his father once before, and Jonathan will try again. David sort of already knows, and I think it's clear at this point, David knows what the answer will be, but they put together a plan that I think David knows will finally convince Jonathan of the madness and the rage and the jealousy that Saul is descending into. They hatch this plan in verses 5 through 11, and it comes to fruition later in verses 24 through 34. David hid in the field to wait on the word from Jonathan. You see, Saul was throwing a new moon festival, something he would expect everyone from his court to be present at. And so David is not there, understandably. This is part of the plan. He's missing. And so on the first day, Saul lets it slide. Of course, it's just something small, he thinks. I'm sure he's just unclean and will be here tomorrow. On the second day, however, Saul figures things out and inquires of Jonathan, verse 27, as to where it is that David might be. And Jonathan, according to plan, tells Saul that David is at a family feast. He's with his clan in Bethlehem. And the key here to understanding Saul's frame of mind is if he handles it well, then things are like Jonathan thinks they are. But if he handles it poorly, if he responds with anger and rage, then David is right. And of course, Saul is incensed. This is the sign that Saul was aiming to harm David. And then in his rage, Saul's anger is kindled against his son as well. He insults him deeply by talking about his mother in a way that in Hebrew idiom is a shameful way to speak. 
And he says he's shaming their family in verses 30 and 31. And he's saying, you're giving up the throne. You're giving up the future. You're giving up our dynasty to that shepherd boy, David. And Saul's madness and rage has developed to such a point that he throws a spear at his own son, the future of his own dynasty. Saul's madness has now become self-destructive in his efforts to pin even his own son against the wall. David and Jonathan had devised a clever method if things had gone south to meet up again. And using that with a boy and some arrows and some other things, they meet again in a field to share the information. They encounter one, one another again. And I want you to notice something that's said in verse 42. As soon as the boy had gone, verse 41, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Verse 42, Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. The word's not used there, but it's used earlier in the chapter. It's used earlier in the book. It's used later in the book as well. What they're describing here is the covenant that they've made with one another. They say there's a covenant of the Lord between me and you. And I want you to know and see that David and Jonathan are not just mere friends. They're not just two people who like each other a lot. It's not that Jonathan just says, man, I really like this guy. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll ruin my whole life and the future of my family for the sake of this guy. Now, they have made a covenant commitment because Jonathan sees what God is doing in the life of David. And that's not to downplay that they were genuinely friends, that they genuinely loved each other. The text clearly shows and displays that, but the reality is that they are in covenant community with one another. And I want you to know, brothers and sisters, in your dark days, in your dark days, I am not sure there's anything you need more than the covenant community of the people of God. People who have made a covenant of the Lord between you and them. People who are committed to your best and committed to your walk with Christ and are committed to love and serve you no matter what. I want you to consider this, that that's one reason why the local church is so important. There's one reason why the local church is so important. I think what David and Jonathan are experiencing in covenant with one another is prefiguring in some ways what God expects of all his children in the New Testament age. All those who are united together in Christ should be united together in a covenant community. That's why God gave us the local church. That's why we come together. That's why we have membership in the local church because we are entering into covenant with one another. Now, I want you to consider this. We are committed to one another. We are covenanted with one another. And I want this place to be. I want this church. And I don't mean just this building, but I mean this body. I want this body to be the place you long to come to and find help in in your darkest days. Now, let me just tell you something. That's easier said than done. Okay? That's easier said than done. All right, listen. Here's what I want. I want you guys to love each other. Okay? Let us pray. Right? No, it's... Easier said than done, right? Hey, take care of each other. Bear one another's burdens. It's easier said than done. We have to make sure that all that we do, that all that we do here is rooted in and help 
helping to foster covenant community, making this the place where people feel like they can come on their darkest days, even the darkest days of their own making. So often, of course, we feel it's easy when your world has come unraveled to come to church. What about when you've unraveled your world? And how will we respond? Why do you think the Bible, and especially the New Testament, is so deadly serious about the sin of gossip? You ever wondered about this? You start thinking about all the different emphases of the New Testament and how often it talks about gossip. And it's not just because that's something people were doing. And it's not just because I think a lot of people think the Bible's just about finding every little peccadillo in your life and, and really trying to do all it can to make sure you're not sinning so that for this reason or that reason or just because they like the rules. <laughs> no, why is the Bible so serious about sinning? Because when we reduce other people's darkest days and moments to our own personal entertainment and joy, then what we do is we kill covenant community in the church. Gossip makes the church the last place in the world that people would want to bring their problems. Judgmentalism makes the church the last place in the world that people would want to come to your problems. I know that we are all good Christian people here, and I I know this is a Baptist church, but I want to encourage everyone here to do all you can to get rid of your blush reflex. It's one of my favorite things to say as a pastor is, you can't make me blush. You will not shock me with your sin. And you will not shock, by God's grace, First Baptist Church with your sin. This is precisely the place to bring it. I want you to ask yourself this question today. Am I providing, am I providing, not am I receiving, but am I providing the sort of friendship, love, accountability, grace, and care that a covenant community ought to provide to people in their darkest days? I want you to think especially of the Sunday school classes that you're in. Are we providing covenant community in these groups? Are we loving one another and bearing one another's burdens in the way the Bible calls us? Because there are people in our church who are walking through dark days who desperately need their covenant community. That's the first point. God is faithful to us through covenant community. But second of all, God is faithful in dark days through provision and protection. God is faithful through provision and protection. Jonathan flees, I mean, David flees from his time with Jonathan, and he's now officially a fugitive. Saul's own son knows the truth. There's now at this point, though David already knew it, now the the door is absolutely slammed shut on any hope of return to Saul's good graces. In chapter 21, the narrative continues, and David has fled to Nob, where he runs into there Ahimelech, the priest. And the Lord uses the priest at Nob to provide David with holy bread and also a weapon. Now, this is bread that uh, hot bread was meant to be taken before the Lord, and these the 12 loaves that were replaced were to be eaten only by the priests, and that was all the bread the priest had to provide for David. But they said, look, as long as your men are ceremonially clean, and David confirms they are, you're welcome to have this bread. They make an exception here to the law in this way. But also, they provide for David a weapon. Stored there, stored there at Nob is Goliath's sword. Goliath's sword is there. And so they provide David with a, a weapon as well. Now I want you to let a little chill run down your spine when you read verse 7 because it's going to come into play later. The Bible just has a little aside that seems strange to us 
at first that someone was there when this happened. Doeg the Edomite was there, and he was one of Saul's herdsmen. It's important to note that he wasn't an Israelite and that his allegiance was Saul. What happened here at Nob will not stay private for long. But you see the way that God gave David provision when he desperately needed it. Well, then leaving Nob, David has received provision, but then he goes to where he thinks he can be as safe as possible. Now, isn't it ironic that David is fleeing from his home country? He's fleeing from his own king. He's fleeing from the one who has promoted him time after time. He's pre- he is fleeing from the one who in many ways is like a father figure to him, Saul. He will say such later in the text. And David flees from there to a place called Gath. Does anybody see the irony of David fleeing from Israel, his home, to a place called Gath, taking with him the sword of the champion, Goliath of Gath. He's on his way to Goliath's hometown. Now, you must know that things are desperate. You must know that things are difficult when you go to the place where you are persona non grata, public enemy number one. You took down the hometown boy. You crushed all the Philistines. It was like going back to Mudtown and you just killed Casey Jones or whatever else. You know, this is the worst case scenario for David to be going there. And yet he goes there, I think, hoping that he'll be inconspicuous, hoping that people don't notice him. The problem is that the people of Gath have radios. And they've heard the songs. Verse 11. You see what the Bible says? Is not this David, the servants of the king say? Is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. David's immediately recognized by the servants of Achish, and they bring him before him, and they're saying, this is David, and, and we need to do something about him. And, and David sort of brilliantly, wily David, begins to act like a madman. And Achish obviously doesn't recognize David. And so David, putting these servants to shame, acts like a madman. He says, why are you bringing this guy to me? Don't I have enough madmen? Aren't there enough crazy people in Gath but for you to not bring this one as well? Get him out of here. And so God protects David. He was trying to go there quietly. He was trying to go there incognito. But here we see the way God provided protection for David. And so often in our darkest days, is that not what we're longing for the most? Provision? God, will you just give me what I need? Maybe your dark days are because you are not feeling very well provided for. And so often what we're longing for in our darkest days is protection. God, would you protect me from this grief? God, would you protect me from this illness? God, would you protect me from these difficulties? But I want you to know something, brothers and sisters. Even in dark days, sometimes we can look back, and I know many of you could testify to this today. We can look back and see how God provided for us and protected us. God is keeping you safe and keeping you provided for in ways you cannot see today. So often in the moment, we are blinded to God's goodness. We are blinded to God's provision. We are blinded to God's protection. But don't you see the way even sometimes your awful circumstances were God's providential care and God's providential protection and God's providential provision. Things you mourned, things you grieved in the moment. In hindsight, you can see the way God 
was using those things. He can and will do this still, even in unlikely ways like what he's doing with David. Someone on the run, he is protecting him, he is providing for him, even when everything seems and feels and really is, from David's perspective, totally up in the air. Do you see how God, at the right moments, at the right times, at the right places, is doing exactly what David needs, is giving precisely what he needs? We so often want God to show us the plan. (laughs) When God is saying, just trust me. I will provide. I will protect. God is faithful to us through protection and provision. God is faithful to us through covenant, community. And I want you to see one last thing this morning. It's this. God is faithful to us through scandalous grace. God is faithful to us through scandalous grace. Now, if you've studied David at all, not everyone's uh, done a lot of study in the Old Testament. That's okay. But most of us who have spent much time in the Old Testament, when we think about David, what do we think about? Well, maybe you might say Bathsheba or, or something like that. That's obviously something that comes to our minds. But usually we think about David in his prime, don't we? I mean, the king in Israel, winning all the battles, He's taking care of business. He's cleaning the land out. And who does David have around him? You may not. His mighty men, right? This great band of warriors. David goes out. He fights the battles of the Lord. He leads Israel into her golden age. That's how we think about David. The golden king in the golden age leading Israel into her finest days. What a beautiful thing to think about. But I want you to see this passage. It's not glorious. Notice who's with him. His family comes, which is good. His clan comes and surrounds him. That's a good amount of people. People are loyal to him, people who love him. He goes on to take his parents to Moab. Thankfully, his grandmother was a a, a Moabite, and so he receives friendly reception in Moab. So you may have read the book of Ruth and learned a little bit about uh, David's Moabite ancestry. But here he has some friendly people in Moab who take in his aging parents until he can care for them himself. But his family surrounds him. But I want you to see something in verse 2 of chapter 22. Who else comes? Not just his family, but who else? Everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered gathered to him. And he became commander over them, and there were with him about 400 men. So it's David and his family on the island of misfit toys. David among the fellowship of the rejected and despised. I can just imagine David praying. You know, get in there, he knows where he is, he knows what's going on, he prays. Lord, if you could just, I don't know, if you could just send me 400 men, I think we could do this thing. And look who the Lord sends. (laughs) Everyone who's distressed, everyone who's bitter in soul, everyone who's in debt, he gets the ragtag bunch. It's David and the bad news bears. What a contrast to how we envision David surrounded by these mighty men of valor. I'm certain that many of these men who at this point in their life are down on their luck or in a bad place in society are rejected and despised. I'm confident that many of those are who became David's mighty men of valor. But today, that's not the case. See the way in all of these small details? Do you see the way that God is pointing David and us 
to the glory of grace that's brewing in David's life. But do you see what God's doing? Remember, God is not just making David king. God God doesn't just want David to be king just because David's going to be a better king than Saul. If you're being honest, if we really look at Saul's accomplishments, he was not that bad of a king. He didn't walk with the Lord. He didn't honor the Lord like he should, and that's enough to be rejected as king. But there are plenty of kings later who are far worse than Saul was in the height of his kingship. Why is God choosing David? Why is God establishing David? If God just wanted a good king or a better king, he could have made Jonathan king. It would have been simple to do. But what did God do? He chose David because God is doing something beyond just putting a king in Israel. God is establishing a kingdom that will last forever and ever and ever, and that will be ruled over and reigned over by God's own Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is also... Miracle of all miracles, a son of David. David is despised and rejected and put outside the camp and those in desperate need are flocking to him. Do you see the way that we are being pointed to the scandalous grace of God in Christ that the worst and the lowliest and the most awful people are the ones who are fleeing to David and seeing his glory and beauty? Not everyone can see it. God is working a glory in this moment that we, it is beyond anything anyone then could have imagined and something beyond even what I believe David could have imagined at this point. Do you see, do you see the way we are being pointed here to the scandalous grace of God in Christ? The the reality is everyone here, everyone here has a level of grace, not for themselves but a level of grace that would be shown to others. Everyone here has a level of grace that's beyond your threshold of toleration. (laughs) I can't believe God would welcome that kind of person into His kingdom. I, I can't believe the preacher would say that kind of sinner is welcome in the Lord's church through repentance and faith. I I can't believe that we're going to accept this person or that person. I can't believe who have repented of their sins and turned from their sins. I can't believe that that's the case. Do you see the way we're being pointed here to the scandalous grace of God in Christ? David is pointing us forward to that reality. Man, I just can't get off my mind. I can't stop imagining the things that were on David's mind during this time. You know he had to be contemplating these markers of providence, these, these ways in which God had been faithful. A Moabite grandmother. A Moabite grandmother who allowed passage, safe passage, whose heritage presumably allowed safe passage for his parents in their time of need. A ragtag band of warriors. Five loaves of showbread. The sword of a giant. All these markers of God's providence, the way God is working, the way God is being faithful, even in David's darkest days. Brothers and sisters, God is faithful even on our darkest days. I can't get it off my mind. I'm unable to stop imagining how David was thinking, what he was thinking about. But the good news is we don't have to imagine. During this season, the Bible tells us David wrote a song. Later today, I might encourage you to flip over to Psalm 34 and read it. The Bible tells us it's from the episode when he feigned madness. After these great displays of the faithfulness of God, I imagine David 
sitting by the fire, singing, <laughs> strumming his heart, maybe working out the tune to the song that's working around in his mind and his head, singing and leading brothers and nieces and nephews and debtors and grumblers and outcasts, everyone around him, singing to them, leading them in song about the wonders and glories of God. Perhaps if you've seen this text, if you've looked at these verses today, you're going to have the same reaction that David had. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Oh, fear Saul? No. Oh, fear Achish? No. Oh, fear what Doeg the Edomite might do? No. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints. For those who fear Him have no lack. The young lions, they suffer want and hunger. But those who seek the Lord, though they're hiding in a cave, though they have to use another man's sword, though the only bread they can find is the holy bread that's left over, though everything seems to be going the wrong way, those who seek the Lord, David said, lack no good thing. Brothers and sisters, in our darkest days, God is faithful. He's faithful in our covenant community. God is faithful to provide for us and to protect us. And my friends, I want you to know that God is faithful through scandalous grace, even when the days seem so dark. Brothers and sisters, would today you taste and see that the Lord is good. I want to offer an invitation this morning. If you've never trusted God for the first time, if you never put your hope and faith and trust in Jesus, I want to offer an invitation to you today. If you would turn from your sins and repentance and turn to God in faith through Jesus, I really firmly, 100% believe you will be saved. 